From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Verveer. Today, we bring you a special episode in honor of Human Rights Day, which is celebrated every year on December the 10th. It commemorates the day that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted back in 1948 and is an opportunity to continue the fight for human rights around the world and here at home. To celebrate how far we've come and examine the work we still have ahead of us, we're bringing you a special conversation that I had with two distinguished former United States Secretaries of State, Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton. This conversation was recorded in October on the 25th anniversary of the landmark speech Secretary Clinton gave at the UN Fourth World Conference on Women that took place in Beijing. There, she famously declared, women's rights are human rights. Here we are, 25 years later, and I'd like to begin by asking our esteemed guests to take us back to the time of the conference, to take us back to your individual engagements. You know, there are many people who say, what's the big deal? It was just another one of those world conferences. But you knew it was important uh, for our country and for the world. And and it would be interesting to know how you saw it and how you saw your respective roles. So we can begin with whoever wants to go first. Secretary Clinton. Oh, sure. And, and Milan, thank you so much for um, hosting this and your incredible team at Georgetown for uh, putting this on. And I'm thrilled to be with you and of course my good dear friend, Madeleine Albright. Um, we had a view uh, back in the day in the Clinton administration uh, that expanding the rights and roles and opportunities of women uh, was uh, an issue that had a moral and social imperative, of course, uh, but that based on the research then, and of course there's been far more since, uh, it appeared to be uh, also a very pragmatic uh, objective for American foreign policy, that it would, if we were to make it a pillar of our American diplomacy, uh, help to open eyes and ears and change laws and regulations uh, around the world that would actually enhance global prosperity and security. So when the UN invited me to travel with the uh, American delegation headed by uh, then UN Ambassador Albright, uh, I was thrilled uh, to uh, be asked to play a role and to um, speak out on that stage uh, to represent uh, the, not just the administration, but obviously our country. Now it was not without some uh, controversy as uh, some of you remember. And I write about this in an uh, article in the Atlantic uh, Monthly Magazine that is online uh, right now. 
uh, because there were people who opposed uh, any American involvement in a UN conference about women. And I quote uh, Republican senators who were very outspoken in saying we shouldn't go. It was anti-family, anti-women, the kind of arguments they've been making for a very long time. And there were those inside the administration who were fine about a delegation going, but didn't think the then first lady should go uh, and give a speech on the international uh, stage that aligned the president very personally, as well as myself, uh, with the goals uh, of the conference. Needless to say, I was determined to go and made my views very clear. Uh, my husband was uh, incredibly um, supportive and basically behind my going. I told members of the administration and the White House and the State Department that if I didn't go with the blessing of our government, I was gonna get on a commercial plane and go. But it all worked out and uh, I was thrilled and honored. Uh, to be going to Beijing with a distinguished American delegation that was the formal representation uh, of the United States and many thousands of activists uh, and organizations that were also going to be uh, there for the conference. So, uh, Secretary Albright, you were heading the delegation. Um, you spoke in the formal session uh, as part of the United States delegation. Secretary Clinton spoke uh, in a keynote setting. Uh, take us a little bit behind the scenes. What was the reaction that uh, you got to your, uh, to your message? And why did you think it was so important uh, to be engaged in this? Well, I also want to thank you for all the work you've put into this and to, for being a great colleague at Georgetown. So, um, and it's always fun to do something with my very good friend, Hillary Clinton. So this is perfect. I have to say that one of the things when I got to the UN, which was in February 93, was already an issue about how to make uh, women's roles clearer and um, really uh, to get the support of the system to really work on women's issues. By the way, one of the things that I did when I got there, it was one of the first times I didn't have to cook lunch myself, so I asked my assistant to invite the women, other women ambassadors. At that time, there were 183 countries in the UN, but then I get to my apartment and there are only six other women there. Uh, Canada, Philippines, Kazakhstan, Trinidad, Tobago, Jamaica, um, and Liechtenstein and me. Being the American, I decided I had to form a caucus and we called ourselves the G7. Um, and what we did was already begin to lobby on behalf of women's issues to make sure that rape was not seen as a weapon of war. And to get, um, there was a new war crimes tribunal that had been put together to deal with the issues in the former Yugoslavia to make sure there were women judges. But also constantly up there, I would be talking about the importance of having a larger agenda for uh, how to deal with women's issues internationally. So I was delighted when uh, it was clear that we were going to this conference, that it was something that we wanted to participate in. I knew Hillary had been invited um, in her own right. And then my job was, by, was to try to assemble an American delegation and try to decide how many of us and how that would all work. And so um, 
and nothing is without complications because there were people who thought they should be and others who shouldn't be. But we finally put together a terrific delegation. And I think uh, there's some crazy stories about what it was like when we arrived in China. We weren't exactly welcomed. Um, and, uh, and so uh, we heard all kinds of stories, most of which were true, um, that the cab drivers had been given sheets to pull, you know, to be able to put over the naked women they were expecting. Um, and then in our hotel rooms, they certainly kept track of everything that we were doing. Uh, the mirror in the bathroom would always be fogged up uh, with some little space that wasn't. Uh, there were stories by some of our delegation where one woman was trying to fix um, um, her TV and all of a sudden she was on the TV. Somebody else was called out for ironing in their room. So it was, there were a lot of very interesting parts, but I do think that what was absolutely essential was that we were there participating actively. So I gave my talk and one of the things that I did was to lay out uh, what were the things that we expected our government to do to fulfill what the pledges were gonna come out of this. And one of the things that um, I said in my talk that uh, this is not about conversations, it's about commitments. And so I really went through what each department whole of government was gonna do in the United States. And, and I think that it was an important speech was received uh, quietly, uh, but truly the most outstanding thing was Hillary's speech. There's just no question. And it just, and it's interesting Hillary, as I uh, uh, know this, and also from reading your article is it's very hard always to deal with audiences where there's translation because it takes a while for everything to connect. And uh, when you're talking to an American audience, you actually expect some immediate reaction. So it took a while for people to really absorb your incredible message. Women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. And I have rarely seen over so many years, a single message carry such important meaning and have such adorable life. And it is due to you and it is due to the kinds of things that Milan is doing through her institute. And then also due to the dedication of so many women to the messages that we were delivering. They resonated and they continue to do so. So Secretary Clinton, let's talk a little bit about that speech because there was enormous speculation about what you would say. Uh, there were all kinds of stories that uh, you wouldn't say anything of note. There were other stories that were suggesting you might be an embarrassment to the United States. Uh, and nobody really knew what was in that speech except for very few people. Uh, and you got up to that platform uh, and you proceeded to give what is now a very well-known uh, statement. Give us a sense of um, how you felt, uh, what you intended to do, and the reaction you got. Well, in a way, Milan, um, I was fortunate that in the uh, first uh, two years uh, before the speech of the Clinton uh, administration, I traveled on behalf of our country, sometimes with uh, my husband, sometimes alone, occasionally with my daughter. And I was able to go to a number of countries, as you well know, uh, and meet with um, activists uh, who were deeply involved in 
the work in their own societies to try to improve opportunities for girls and women. So I had the advantage of a, a pretty deep, although, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, a compressed uh, experience uh, between uh, 1993 and, and September of uh, 1995 uh, that informed uh, what I had seen, what I had learned, and gave me an idea of the progress that we were making and the great areas where we were not. Uh, so when I began working on the speech with Lissa Muscatine, um, my speechwriter in the White House with you, um, we were you know, determined to try to both uh, carry a message about the United States and our commitment, including ourselves, however, in the need to uh, do better on uh, women's uh, equality, but also to very uh, clearly uh, call out many of the abuses that people perhaps didn't even understand uh, were uh, denying uh, the full equality and the human rights of women around the world. And I remember being on the plane uh, taking us to China and Madeline, who was such a trooper, literally left one of her daughter's weddings early uh, to meet up with us to fly over. And we were in the little cabin uh, talking about the speech. And Madeline is the one who said, so what do you want to accomplish? Uh, what, what's the real purpose of this speech? And I said, I wanted to push the envelope as far as I could for girls and women. And, and that's really what we tried to do uh, in the speech, so that it was a combination of um, hopefulness, but frankly, some pretty uh, you know, clear message about reality, uh, the reality of women and girls' lives. Uh, so uh, it, it turned out to be, I think, exactly the right balance, but as you said, you know, getting up there to deliver it, um, I was nervous. Uh, we were all jet lagged, obviously, uh, but it uh, slowly came across to the audience through all the, you know, multiple translations, and you could see looks of recognition. Uh, you could see people looking around when I said certain things. So I knew that our message was being received, and and then I was delighted that. Uh, it had such a galvanizing effect. And, and then you were speaking, as Madeline was, uh, to the uh, as part of the delegation, to the officials who were gathered in Beijing. And there were some thousands in that cavernous hall. And then both of you separately went to Wairo. And that was the place where tens of thousands of NGOs from all over the world uh, were gathered to be part of this extraordinary event. Um, and again, there was advice, unsolicited advice, uh, not to go to, to Wairo. Nobody knew what was going to happen there. And yet both of you went because not only were thousands of American delegates uh, to the civil society part of the conference there, uh, but tens of thousands of their fellow um, colleagues from all over the world on these issues. Why did you go to Wairo? And, and give us a sense of that as well. Why was that important? Well, let me um, kind of uh, really address that because we have so much believed always 
in the group in the idea of non-governmental organizations of various groupings of people um, that are the basis of being able to move forward on government policies in the United States. We're a democracy. We like to hear from various groups and peoples. And um, we knew also, frankly, uh, that it was essential to welcome others into this incredible circle of women uh, that uh, wanted to make change. But it was, as one could expect, unbelievably complicated. The Chinese didn't want the official delegates, and they certainly didn't want uh, the non-governmental organizations there. And so they made it very difficult. They said that we could not meet in what was kind of a sports arena because there were problems with the infrastructure of it and that it was going to fall down and they didn't want us to be there. Of course, while we were there, they did have other events uh, at this uh, arena. And so they put this whole thing way out in this place called Wairo, uh, which was not easy to get to in the first place. And then, and Hillary, I know you had the same issues in terms of it was muddy and awful. It was trying to figure out how we got to meet with the people that we wanted to, uh, especially difficult for those with disabilities of having to get their way through the mud and everything. And so it was very important to go under any circumstances, but frankly, even more important because it was so difficult for the participants and, and they were very glad to see us. By the way, one of the issues, uh, somebody came up to me a Chinese and said uh, at some point, so where is this country called Lesbia? Because they couldn't understand why everybody was talking about lesbians. Uh, <laughs> and so they were confused by everything that was going on. But I do think this meeting, the various meetings, and, and I know I went around to a lot of groups, you did Hillary, in terms of to make clear uh, that that particular assemblage was something that was very, very important. Can I interrupt and say, I wanna give a little bit of the backstory to our, uh, our United Nations uh, uh, cooperation. By the way, Hillary and I um, went to the same college. She's 10 years younger than I am at Wellesley, uh, but we didn't know each other particularly well before I went into the administration. And the whole issue of the UN and women is what is the basis of I consider one of the most interesting and best friendships that I have. And there were always stories about Hillary channeling Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor Roosevelt is the one that is the basis of the Human Rights Declaration. And so Hillary came up to visit me um, and I was able to take her around to meet a lot of the delegations and the trips that she had just been talking about um, were um, so important in being informative and also, if I may say so, validating her credentials, that she really was somebody that cared and did a lot of different things and was into uh, multilateral UN organizations and, and obviously the women's issues. And it really was the ceiling of our friendship. Um, and she talks about my coming on the trip. I'm often asked about life balance issues that was really the epitome of it, to leave the festivities of my daughter's wedding to go to a, uh, a whole meeting about women's rights. So anyway, <laughs> but I, I treasure my friendship with Hillary beyond measure. <laughs> I love you so much, Madeline. And, and um, I just want to add a, a little 
more detail to some of the atmospherics. So uh, going back to the big hall uh, where um, I spoke about, you know, third of the way through the speech, I was criticizing certain practices and, and some of those were applicable to uh, China. So they cut off the sound for my speech uh, because they were piping it out of the rooms, the big rooms where the speakers actually appeared into this massive convention center. Uh, but when I came out of having given the speech, there were thousands of uh, people and they were hanging over escalators and balconies and um, greeting me and I was greeting them. Fast forward, literally when I was Secretary of State, uh, I got an email from a friend of mine uh, who had been shopping in uh, Beijing at a big department store and they were you know, piping Muzak into the store. And then all of a sudden he starts to hear my speech, which was being piped in uh, through the loudspeaker system. So, you know, better late than never. Uh, but to go back to also why Roe, um, as, as Madeline said, uh, and as, as Milan remembers, it had been raining. So there was just lots of mud because the conference um, moved this NGO uh, gathering into uh, an area that had a lot of fields. It was about 45 minute drive outside of Beijing. So the conditions were quite challenging, uh, but I don't think I've ever seen more enthusiastic, energized people. Nothing stopped them. The rain, the mud, the cramped conditions, you know, some of the rough tactics of the Chinese security people, because when I showed up with members um, of the delegation who went with me, uh, they had to fight their way through the crowd and through, you know, the security um, apparatus, the police trying to stop people from moving around. So even though it was challenging um, in terms of the circumstances, I, to this day, meet people around the world who tell me they were at Wairo. I'll meet women who are working on education or healthcare or economic empowerment, and they will say, you know, I was at Wairo. I was at the NGO conference. Um, so in addition to the formal work uh, that resulted in what was called the Beijing Declaration and the Platform for Action that came out of, what, 189 countries actually agreeing to something, which, you know, was a miracle in and of itself. The NGO gathering at Wairo was also, um, as, as you heard uh, Milan and Madeline say, a really important uh, moment for a lot of activists to network with one another and then to take the platform for action from the formal conference back to their countries, back to their organizations uh, to begin work. So it, it turned out to be a, a great combination uh, between the two. And I, I'm so glad that you both spoke to that because we have so many uh, NGOs who are tuned in today who are continuing to do that hard work. Uh, and also, you know, people, women under 30 probably have no recollection because they were either not born or uh, mere children uh, when all of this was happening. So I think to hear about its import 
uh, is really important. Um, and Hillary, you just talked about taking it back. Uh, and here we are 25 years later. Uh, you were both committed. We're all committed to taking that platform uh, and incorporating it, integrating it as best we could uh, into, the own, uh, into the interests of our own country to advance uh, the status of women and girls. Um, you both forged a close relationship as uh, Madeline has described. How did you go about uh, implementing the platform uh, into the United States and into our foreign policy beyond? Um, and why was that so important to do as well? Well, I'll, I'll start, Milan, because you were instrumental in all of this. And we really formed um, a tight uh, relationship uh, between and among uh, those of us in the White House uh, in both formal and informal volunteer roles like my own and key players within uh, the administration. And one of the luckiest uh, developments for us in terms of uh, really following through on the agenda for women's equality and the platform for action, which had a really specific set of uh, proposed uh, changes, was that um, Madeline continued to be very supportive in her role as UN ambassador. But when she became our first ever woman secretary of state, uh, she really uh, made it clear that the agenda coming out of Beijing was not just a luxury that you know would be nice to think about when we had time, but actually uh, integrated into our foreign policy. And uh, Madeline provided great leadership. She had people in the State Department uh, devoted to uh, following through and working on these issues. So I, I think we tried to uh, build on the personal relationships that we had by creating some institutional uh, support uh, for this ongoing commitment. And uh, a lot of that work continued after the Clinton administration into the Bush administration, uh, where uh, then uh, Condi Rice as Secretary of State, Laura Bush with her attention, particularly to Afghan women, you know, still carried the, uh, you know, the flag of, of you know, women's equality, uh, participation, rights, being uh, part of American foreign policy. And then we also, as, as you recall, Milan, we, we did a lot of work trying to bring in women senators because by the time I got into uh, the Senate, uh, in 2001, you know, we were looking for ways to make sure that American laws, uh, you know, at the at the federal, state, and local level, were um, also uh, not discriminating against women, uh, but uh, being a, a positive force uh, to uh, improve uh, women's equality. And then, during the Obama administration, uh, there was a heavy emphasis on women and girls uh, in the White House. I think Valerie Jarrett uh, headed up uh, a, uh, the group then. And of course, Michelle Obama was very outspoken about girls and women, particularly education. And then at the State Department, we were able uh, 
uh, to get the first ever global women's ambassador position established and, and have it at ambassadorial rank. And of course, Milan, you're, you know, you are the inaugural ambassador and you were tireless in your pursuit. And, and maybe you could say a word about some of the work we did with the United Nations Security Council with the newly formed uh, United Nations uh, uh, Office for Women uh, and Commissioner for Women, because this all kept moving and it was an important ongoing commitment. Now, obviously, we're on a hiatus from that right now <laughs> in the current administration, but I have every reason to believe that, you know, we'll be back on track. Well, I, I think, you know, you're so right. This was a, a very evolutionary process. Uh, and I think it's so important to understand how it had its roots uh, in this international meeting. Uh, and, and certainly uh, when you were secretary, uh, you had really mandated that we integrate these issues throughout the whole department, whether it was what our embassies were doing to represent our country overseas or whether uh, it had to do with uh, various bureaus from human rights to conflict and stabilization. Um, but I think that one of the, the critical elements was certainly in this area of women, peace and security, because after the Beijing conference, this, the Security Council uh, saw the wisdom of linking women to peace and security that had been uh, begun in Beijing, but now it was formalized in a framework. Um, and, and that's when hard work went on um, in, the, in, the, uh, in the time we were together uh, to really uh, make that uh, much more uh, firm. Uh, and this national action plan obviously contributed to that. Um, but today there is a law. The United States has the first law on women, peace and security. So you can see this continuum that I think is really uh, important to think about and continue to implement. I want to go back um, to Secretary Albright and uh, what you did. I still remember uh, not long after you became Secretary of State. Uh, it was in March of International Women's Day. Uh, and you came together in a major event at the State Department with the then First Lady uh, and talked about why these issues were central to foreign policy. Uh, do you remember that? Well, I do, but I also have to, I love the linkage among the three of us here because <clears throat> one of the things <clears throat> that happened is that we really, having come back from Beijing, there was the establishment of a White House Council on Women and then uh, really kind of trying to monitor how our government was uh, fulfilling the various uh, aspects of it. Um, and uh, once I became Secretary of State, and I have to say thanks to Hillary. And the reason I know that is the president said so. Uh, but I think that the important part is we really developed what I would say is a tag team um, in terms of traveling together or following up on various things that had to be done. Uh, and whether it was in Washington or abroad, and people saw that. They saw that the first lady and the the first woman Secretary of State were actually able to do things together uh, on behalf of a, an incredible agenda. Now, I have, I 
take some credit in the following way is that I decided that I would make women's issues central to American foreign policy. And not just because I'm a feminist, but I could say that I know that when women are politically and economically empowered in societies, because we're more than half the population in many countries, um, the situation is better and it's in American national interest. And so you can put together um, various aspects that are realistic in terms of what American foreign policy is about. And then again, the three of us, um, the Vital Voices, which was a, an outside organization, which Milan and Hillary, we kind of figured out how to work on together and spread uh, the word in a number of ways. And so um, I hope that the whole aspect of this is that we could see what we could do together. Then the other thing, when I got to the State Department, I decided that we needed more women ambassadors and foreign service officers and really made diversity um, one of the major aspects. And so being able to have a meeting at the State Department to honor um, the expansion. And then of course, Hillary took it to whole levels beyond anything um, I could have done um, in terms of um, when she was first uh, first lady and then a senator and then a secretary. And with you there, Milan, I think that made a huge difference also. So um, in being able to give that talk at the State Department, there was something to talk about to really show that we were making progress and that we had to do this more together. And I think that that continues to be the theme. Well, and you know, your mention of Vital Voices Democracy Initiative in those days was really an effort on the part of the United States uh, to support emerging women leaders around the world, whether they were in the new democracies uh, or they were still struggling in their countries that were democratic, uh, but to really understand that these networks of women globally uh, were so critically important and that they deserved our support. Um, so a lot did come out of this and we've been fairly celebrating the, this moment. Uh, but I wonder if you feel disillusioned these 25 years later uh, that we haven't made greater progress. Um, in some places, there's extraordinary pushback on the progress that has been made. Um, are you dispirited? What do you see in that? Do you, do you have a, a greater sense of urgency uh, to accelerate uh, where we are? I think it's the World Economic Forum on certain measures has noted that at the pace we are keeping, uh, it will take 100 years uh, to have equality in, in ways that uh, still aren't uh, a reality. So, so how, do you, how do you see these, this moment, 25 years later, looking at the effort that's been ongoing, but also looking at the reality of how, how far we still have to go, because in no country is the gap closed between men and women in terms of gender equality. Well, Milan, you're absolutely right. And it's uh, a classic uh, good news, bad news story. Um, at the 20th uh, anniversary of Beijing, um, the Clinton Foundation worked with the Gates Foundation. My daughter and I worked with Melinda Gates to um, commission an analysis of where we were, uh, how much progress we've made and what were the big gaps. Um, 
five years later, you know, it's pretty much uh, the same. Um, and, and here's how I would briefly uh, describe it. In education and healthcare, we've seen significant progress. We've seen uh, many more girls in school and continuing their education uh, into university level or into secondary level, which um, in many places was just not available at all. Uh, in uh, healthcare, we've seen improvements in uh, uh, maternal mortality and other indicators of uh, girls and women's health. Um, so I think if you look at education and healthcare, it is fair to say that uh, there has been the will and to some extent the resources and the continuing commitment uh, to bring about progress in most, not all, but in most areas of the world. However, if you look at politics and government, uh, business and the economy, uh, conflict and security, uh, the story is not as positive. Uh, we still are lagging far behind uh, in terms of uh, women's representation in their governments and particularly in elected office. Uh, there are some countries, uh, people often talk about Rwanda, and rightly so. Uh, there have been a lot of other countries in Scandinavia and elsewhere where uh, if parity has not been achieved and sustained, at least it's been close and, and a continuing uh, institutional effort has been uh, at work. But in most places, politics and government remain predominantly uh, a male uh, sector. And we um, need to continue the pressure on that because we have, I think, uh, convincing evidence that when you have women in government and in politics, uh, particularly in democracies, as Milan pointed out, um, you have a, uh, a level of concern and funding for a lot of uh, uh, health, education, and family-related issues. Uh, so there's work to be done. Secondly, in business and the economy, I mean, look, it's not a surprise to anybody that uh, women are not anywhere near equal in terms of their presence and their leadership uh, of businesses and corporations, except in the micro and small business uh, area. And with small businesses, women may not even call it a business. They call it their you know, market stall, or they call it their, uh, you know, their livestock uh, farming that produces, uh, you know, milk and meat for uh, sale at the market. But women have not really either advanced in uh, business and economic terms, um, or their advancement um, has hit a ceiling. And we don't see the results that we would like to see. And why is this important? Well, as you remember, Milan, when I was Secretary of State, um, we both commissioned and received uh, a new body of research from uh, prognosticators, analytic groups, from you know the uh, kinds of international organizations that study these things, which made it absolutely unequivocally clear that every nation in the world would have a better economy producing more income, jobs, and wealth 
if every barrier against women's participation were removed. The global GDP would go up at least 25%. In some countries, um, it would go up even higher because women are held back so uh, uh, dramatically. In our own country, as I recall, if we removed all the barriers, if we enabled women's employment through paid family leave, through affordable quality childcare, just to name two, um, our gross domestic product would go up about 9%. So I, I, I wanna do a shout out to just retired Prime Minister Abe of Japan because when he went into office, I remember talking to him because he understood that unleashing the potential of Japanese women would help to move the Japanese economy forward, move it out of stagnation. He tried very hard. I think he'd be the first to say he didn't get as far as he wanted, but no country has. And then finally, in the area of uh, conflict, peace, and security, as you know so well, because of the Institute at Georgetown, uh, Milan, and as you know so well, Madeline, because of your expertise and your, your teaching there as a professor, this is an area that has often and for millennia been considered kind of, you know, typically and appropriately all male. And yet what we now know is women and children are the primary victims of, of modern warfare. Uh, and with the kinds of low level ongoing conflicts that we see around the world, that is not going to change. And yet if you're trying to create peaceful conditions, if you're trying to end conflicts, if women are not involved, if women are not at the table, whatever your agreement might be on paper is less likely to be sustained. So I, I think we have a lot of work to do. Am I discouraged? No, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that we haven't gone even farther in 25 years. I'm worried about the pushback and the backlash that we see from authoritarian leaders in particular who are trying to turn the clock back. I don't know why authoritarian leaders make their first play to uh, turn the clock back on women, but that seems to be a historic pattern. Um, but that just energizes me more to speak out, to work with others, to defend those who are on the front lines. I'm thinking about these brave women opposition leaders in Belarus you know, they were the ones who stepped up. They were the ones who ran for office. They were the ones who really have been at the forefront of the demonstrations against the continuing autocracy of uh, the government there. And so women are really trying to make their mark in every uh, walk of life. And I just wanna end by saying that my thinking has also evolved. You know, as I say in the Atlantic article, um, I'm, I'm certainly going to continue to call for women's rights, but more important to me now is enabling women to have the power to claim their rights. I mean, one of the things we saw after Beijing were lots of laws being changed, but the culture, the social and religious pressure didn't result in the kind of, uh, uh, claiming of rights that women uh, deserved. You can change the law about inheritance so that the husband's brother doesn't inherit everything that it goes now to the wife or even to the children, including the daughter. But if it's not enforced, if women don't have the power 
to execute on the laws that were changed, uh, then they're not going to see uh, the kind of uh, progress toward equality that they deserve. So we still have a lot of work to do. You know, Hillary, you made uh, so many good points. And I want to go back to the point you made about um, the plethora of data that we have today, the uh, evidence-based case, if you will, that demonstrates that the condition of women and the condition of nation, nations go hand in hand. Um, and I, I want to ask you, Secretary Albright, because you've been uh, so active uh, with the Democrat, National Democratic Institute, NDI, and its work uh, in women in political participation in particular, uh, but you also understand how important political will is to making some of these changes. Um, and I wonder if you can give us a sense, again, from your work uh, today in particular uh, with women uh, who are struggling to be in politics, the violence they're encountering, um, and some of the changes that are happening um, in some of these countries that is making, uh, making it extremely difficult. Well, great, thank you. And I, before I say that, I have to say, uh, Hillary has talked about her daughter, Chelsea, um, and uh, I have uh, three daughters, but one is particularly involved in some of the things that we've been talking about. She's head of the Global Partnership for Education. Uh, and that is a fund that in fact works on edu uh, educating young men and women and dealing with some of the health issues. So we managed to have introduced our daughters to each other when they were younger and it all seems to have taken, so it's great. Uh, let me just say that um, we are all on the same page in terms of understanding that the job is not done and that we have to keep reaching out to various organizations uh, that we are a part of in order to make things happen. And by the way, you talked about the World Economic Fund. I remember they were not very interested in women um, several years ago, and some of us kind of uh, let that be known. Um, but I do think the following thing, I'm chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute and very proud of generally the democracy work that we do, but are also very focused on trying to help women um, to get involved in politics in their countries. And uh, there are a variety of training programs that we're involved in um, and really uh, work very hard on that with the help, by the way, um, it, this is not according to party because we do some work with the International Republican Institute and really encourage women to become involved in politics, that things do not change and therefore really give the kind of training uh, that is important. The other part, and I think um, has been something that has been noted. Now you were talking about the, the political violence. One of the things that we have found actually is that there are threats against women who are either running for office or in office. So we've been working with a UN program worth the cost in order to really make sure that um, this is notable because what happens is women and their families are threatened if they stay in politics uh, and there has to be more support for all of that. The other part um, that I'm convinced about is that it is important to get men to be supportive of women being in politics uh, and that it's not a zero-sum game, that we can be good partners. When I teach, I spend a lot of time kind of talking about the importance. Um, I, I have role play that I do in my class and I make it a point 
of assigning women to jobs that they haven't yet had, like Secretary of Defense. Um, we always have a woman Secretary of State. Uh, and then try to figure out how um, to have the young men that they're working with understand that the partnership is very important. By the way, one of the subjects that I've been encouraged to talk about whenever I speak is that uh, the countries that are doing best in dealing with the virus are ones that are headed by women. Taiwan, New Zealand, Germany, uh, you know, Finland, and it's really, and I'm asked why, and I'll tell you why I think is because we're very good at multitasking, uh, which gives us peripheral vision uh, and we can see what's coming more down the road. Uh, this is a gross generalization. Men are probably better about thinking deeply about one subject, but we are able, which makes us good partners. Also, we are caregivers. And also the last thing we want is our children to fight with each other. Uh, so we don't pit one group against another. What we're trying to do is find some unity. So um, I do think there are an awful lot of things going on and I'm very, very proud of NDI and the kinds of things we're doing and really getting support for the activities of getting more women involved in politics uh, internationally. Well, we're gonna bring our audience in now and I'm gonna turn to uh, Ali Smith to uh, uh, help us with some of those questions. Allie? Sure. We will start with a question here from Ambassador Marriott Sherman with the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, as we attempt to build back better from COVID, how can we make Beijing Plus 25 a common platform and make equal rights and dignity the foundation of our response? Well, thank you for that, that question, because I, I think it uh, underscores an important point. Obviously, the uh, global pandemic has uh, hit uh, so many places uh, quite hard. But I think it's fair to say, based on, again, the research that we've seen, you know, you can tell the three of us, Milan, Madeline, and I, are, are pretty keen on facts and evidence. I know that may not be uh, popular everywhere, but uh, we think it's a pretty good guide to decide what to do. And the evidence seems to be that uh, the burdens of the pandemic are falling disproportionately on girls and women for a number of reasons. Um, in more advanced economies, uh, you know, certainly I know in the United States, uh, the challenges with getting kids back to school, getting daycare to open again, are falling more on women. And if they're, you know, single moms and they are their sole support, you know, it's putting them in incredibly difficult uh, positions. Um, if they're in a, uh, a partnership, a marriage, um, they are still facing a lot of uh, problems because uh, there isn't the support that women uh, need to go back to work, assuming work uh, can become available. We also know that women are, are, again, disproportionately found in lower wage work um, and the economic uh, disaster of uh, what uh, COVID has brought about, certainly again in our country, but also in Europe and elsewhere, has meant that women um, have been let go at higher numbers. Um, they often don't have any financial cushion to fall back on. 
Um, so we, we can look around the world and see how the virus has impacted women. And I, I think to respond to the really important question, uh, governments have to pay particular attention uh, to rebuilding a post-COVID safety net and understanding um, the disproportionate costs that many people are bearing. Uh, they had nothing to do with uh, creating this virus, uh, but they are uh, left holding uh, the bag of burden. Uh, so governments should be paying close attention to how to you know, create more support for uh, working people in general, but in particular, uh, women who are either sole support or contributing support uh, to their families, to their children. And in a number of countries, the agricultural economy has been decimated. Uh, restaurants have been closed. You know, food is not being bought at the same uh, rate that it was before uh, COVID. So I worry about the smallholder farmers who are about 60% women. You know, they're, they're trying to not only be self-sufficient in their agriculture, but provide funding to have school fees to send kids to school or to, you know, pay for vaccinations or whatever other healthcare they need. So I thank you for the question. And I just hope governments and international organizations um, will do some planning around different groups of people who have been deeply affected by the pandemic with special attention paid to uh, women and girls. If I might add on uh, NDI, um, as I mentioned, as really does an awful lot in supporting women, but um, we've got a new campaign that our president, Derek uh, Mitchell, just put in, changing the face of politics is the theme. But also um, there has now been, given the COVID-19 crisis, uh, we've begun to look at innovative ways to have exchanges in terms of women that with emerging political leaders who might get more um, sustenance in many ways from some of the women leaders that are already out there, like Michelle Bachelet and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and, and Julia Gillard, um, in terms of having podcasts and being very supportive and understanding that it's not simple, but focusing on the fact that, as you pointed out, Hillary, a lot of the health issues fall on women's shoulders. And so it has to be part of the political discussion. You know, and, and it's really interesting that these very inequalities, whether it's the uptick in violence against women or the economic conditions, they were all part of the Beijing discussion. Uh, and we still obviously have a lot of work. Ali? Sure, I'll put two questions here. The first from Katie Galgano with the Center for New American, New American Security. In a moment where we are reckoning with systemic racism, how can we build upon the progress made for women to include women of color and the intersectionality of being a woman of color? And the second question from Amy Kalfas, a graduate student at Georgetown University. In the next decade, what can we do to elevate the role of women peace builders and advance women's leadership in peace and security? Well, those are uh, two really uh, significant questions and they raise a lot of important issues. Um, to the first one, um, I'm glad you brought uh, up the need to pay uh, extra attention to the burdens borne by women of color. 
that was one of the efforts that we made at Beijing 25 years ago. It's as relevant and urgent today <laughs> as it ever was. And I think that lifting up the next generation of young leaders, you know, like the three young women who started uh, the Black Lives Movement, uh, is really critical to um, obtaining equality in more than just uh, uh, the, uh, the, the land of the privileged. Uh, we have to be sure that we are really focused on people who face additional challenges, you know, because they are a woman and black, they are a woman and brown, they are a woman and disabled, they are a woman uh, and LGBTQ, whatever the combination is, we have to do a better job of recognizing the additional challenges that stand in the way of uh, equality. And I think that the, the question uh, really comes down to uh, supporting and lifting up and, and giving more um, prevalence in uh, public debate and decision-making. I have started an organization called Onward Together and we support about 15 uh, American groups uh, with a heavy emphasis on uh, people of color and women uh, running for office, being trained to run, uh, knowing what to do to raise money and get out there, uh, being members of campaigns, standing up for causes. We were very active in supporting groups down on the border to deal with the, you know, the terrible treatment of children being separated from their families. So. You can't just talk in a linear, narrow way about women's uh, rights. You have to understand where a woman is situated, what her additional challenges might be. I think the lessons that we have learned is that nothing happens automatically. Uh, there can be a lot of good ideas like Beijing, and then they have to be really followed out. An organization such as the one that Hillary is talking about is very important. It has to be deliberate. Um, you can't just kind of think it will happen. And so motivation. Uh, and then we always, those of us that have any kind of a voice, have to make sure that we are diversified in our, uh, in our representational things and say, I'm not going to be on this uh, if there's not a woman of color with me or uh, just kind of, it, it has to be very deliberate because I think we can see that we can all be proud of Beijing and many of us have tried to carry on, but it requires deliberate action. And I think that that's where now, and at the same time, which is not easy, a certain amount of humility as we deal with other countries uh, and understanding that, that we all have to deal with this together uh, and that it has to be um, deliberate and humble at the same time. Ellie, I think we have time for another question. Sure. We'll do a final round with two questions here. The first one is from Michael Kearns, another student at Georgetown. What is the greatest area of opportunity for the private sector to advance women's equality around the world? And a question from Judy Wakahu at the UNDP South Sudan country office. In a fragile country such as South Sudan, with multiple crises that undermine efforts towards gender equality and women's empowerment, is there really a watershed moment to celebrate? How do we generate political will for a Beijing plus agenda? 
Again, thank you both for those questions. On the first one about the private sector, I would pick up where Madeline ended. Um, diversify, diversify, diversify. Um, include uh, women and a diverse range of women. You know, we now know, going back to research, I, I hate to uh, underscore, but I will, uh, we now know that diverse groups make better decisions. And corporations that have diversity of leadership actually do better uh, in the long run. So you have to be willing to get outside your comfort zone and you have to be uh, in, you know, in search of different perspectives and experiences that will contribute to the overall um, you know, mission of whatever the business might be. I think it's also important to take a hard look at yourself. I want to uh, uh, call out my friend Mark Benioff, the uh, you know the the CEO and, and chair of uh, Salesforce, uh, because he did something really important, and not enough people have done it. You know, he kept hearing about how there was bias along the way in hiring of women, in promoting and advancing women's career, and he. He thought, well, that's certainly not true at Salesforce. You know, we're a modern, hip company, and so that wouldn't be true. But he instructed his um, uh, team to really do a deep dive. And guess what? They found that it was true. They found that, you know, young men and women came into the company at the same level based on their education and their experience. But that was about the last time they were equal. Men advanced more quickly. They made more money more quickly. And part of it was the way they were being evaluated. And look, I, I write about this in my Atlantic article. I just throw in some of the academic research. Uh, we all know, you know, men are assertive, women are aggressive, you know, you know, men stand up for themselves, women are pushy. And, and these are very um, important implicit biases that are alive and well in the private sector. So I think that as, as Mark showed, people have to bring them into the daylight and say, well, wait a minute, am I evaluating that young man higher than that young woman based on something other than their work and their productivity? You know, maybe it's because I talk sports with the young man and the young woman, you know, she you know, leaves a little bit earlier because she has two kids at home. What, what's going on in my own head that makes me vulnerable to these um, gender-based evaluations. And then just a word on um, South Sudan. And thank you very much for the, to the questioner for continuing to work in South Sudan. And I am hopeful that, uh, that, a, that a peace will hold and that that young country can get back on a peaceful path to development. And of course, women must be included. You know, I'm always amazed when I travel to some places and people will say, yeah, but you know, women aren't in the workforce. Well, maybe not the formal workforce, but they work from dawn <laughs> to dusk. You know, they're not only taking care of children, tending crops, gathering firewood, you know, bringing water, taking care of the family extended. They're, they're actually active participants in their community structures, and yet they're not given credit for their contributions. And 
a smart leader, and I, I hope that we see this not just in South Sudan, but in many places around the world, um, will reach out to develop young people without bias. Both the young men and the young women will be given the education and the health care and the opportunities, not only for their own dreams, but to help build their country. And so I'm hoping that... Uh, you know, South Sudan will have a more peaceful, productive future than they've, they've had over the last several years. Secretary Albright? That it's very important for women to help each other. Um, I have talked about this a lot in terms of not thinking, uh, you know, you're the woman and then you act like a queen bee and you don't want to have other women along. I think it should be a very deliberate way where women help other women uh, in the private sector uh, and public sector, but really recognize that we all do better when we are supportive of each other rather than uh, being concerned because there are not always a lot of women in these jobs that um, it will make your job go away or whatever. But I truly believe, and in my own case, it has helped so much when I've been able to have other women around in terms of really that we support each other. I think that's a very important part. I do think, and one of the things that I've talked about in terms of, especially in the developing world, you know, we talk about various mega trends and one is technology. Uh, and technology actually has helped women. I love talking about the Kenyan woman farmer who no longer has to walk zillions of miles to pay her bills. She can do it with her mobile phone. And so then she can be a part of her uh, economy, her society. She can either go to school or run for office or do whatever. And so I think we need to understand the opportunities that exist and then uh, support them in whatever way we can, whether it's through the private sector or the public sector. But the responsibility is on us. Those of us, um, I always say, it took me a long time to develop a voice and I'm sure not gonna be quiet now. And it is something that I keep talking about, whether I'm teaching or uh, National Democratic Institute or whatever meetings I'm in. And so I do think we need to remember the job is not done. And I think we all are concerned that in some places it's being pushed back. That's what we have to be vigilant about. This is not something you fix and it stays fixed. And so this does require our complete a dedication and working together. And I'm so grateful for this, uh, this whole setup, Milan. Thank you very, very much for, for putting this on. And, and Hillary, it's always fun to do stuff with you over the years. For sure, my friend. Well, thank you both. And, and let me uh, end with uh, something I think our, our audience uh, hopefully will be very interested in because today uh, we are launching uh, and announcing a new report, Beijing Plus 25. Uh, and that's been a collaboration between us at Georgetown and the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, Secretary Clinton's been involved, 25 other global leaders have been involved. And I think it will be an important tool for all of us as we continue uh, this work uh, because it lays out the uh, serious and persistent challenges uh, that we have to confront and overcome uh, but most importantly, it proposes a way forward uh, that builds on the original Beijing platform for action. So uh, for anybody interested, it will be available immediately following this program. 
at www.rockefellerfoundation.org slash Beijing 25. So I hope everybody will avail themselves to that uh, information and that you will find it useful. And I want to end by thanking our two remarkable uh, friends who uh, have continued to demonstrate their commitment, uh, their leadership. Thank you for sharing your experiences, uh, your advice, uh, your reflections on what happened 25 years ago, but perhaps even more importantly, where we need to be and go today. Um, thank you for continuing to lead and for continuing to care. Uh, so to everybody who's joined us today, please know our journey continues ever onward. Thank you all so much. Thanks everybody. Thank you all. Today's episode of Seeking Peace featured audio from an event hosted by us here at the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. If you like what you heard, please share it far and wide. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening app or at seekingpeacepodcast.com. In our next episode, we will meet Wamij Shakir, a Yemeni activist. She is devoting her life to amplifying the voices of women in Yemen during one of the worst conflicts in recent history. Plus, we have the violence, hostile oppressions everywhere. And women who have their young people, their young son, uh, participating in the conflict in the war, being uh, arrested, being killed, being injured. This is the situation of women. They are carrying only burden, carrying only suffering over their shoulders. Will women be protected better in the future? Be compensated, be appreciated, acknowledged. That's next time on Seeking Peace. The second season of Seeking Peace is a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security and Adonde Media in collaboration with Our Secure Future. I'm your host, Milan Verveer. Thank you for listening. To achieve better security outcomes, women have to be at the center of decision-making, all decision-making. Hi, I'm Sahana Dharmapuri, director of Our Secure Future. Women make the difference. We believe that when women tell their stories, they change the world. We know that diverse voices lead to more inclusive and better solutions for everyone. That's why Our Secure Future supports this season of Seeking Peace. Help us change the world, one story at a time. Listen to what women say about making a more peaceful and secure future.